humans, and welcome back to episode 3, which is also the final episode of Unstuck in Reality. This episode is called The End is Here, or is it? Today we will be talking about some literary analysis first, then we'll be going over a scholarly article, which is new this episode, and then finally, at the end, we will be interviewing a very special guest on the topic of death and death cultures all around the world. So thank you for tuning in again and stick with us. Welcome to our first segment. In this segment, we're going to be doing a literary analysis, and we're also going to be doing our general reactions to basically the entire book. We're also going to be looking at a few quotes from the last few chapters, that being chapters 7 through 10. And so, yeah, so we're going to jump in right into it. So what I had is um, this quote, and it's it, and this quote, like, it, it's confusing. Well, the quote itself is not confusing, but how it was brought up, because it was during the last chapter, and in the last trans, in, in the last chapter, there seems to be, like, this transition of, you know, um, the, the narrator talking about Billy, but then it transitions to, I think, uh, Kurt Vonnegut himself. And so I think this is when the uh, transition takes place. And so the quote says... If what Billy Pilgrim learned from the Trelfman Dorians is true, that we will all live forever, no matter how dead we may sometimes seem to be, I am not overjoyed. Still, if I am going to spend eternity visiting this moment and that, I'm grateful that so many of those moments are not. So, like, what do you guys think of that quote? Hmm. So you said um, the last part was, I'm grateful of all the moments, right? Yeah. I think that's kind of a sweet quote in a sense. Um, you know, he's reflecting on his life a little bit and he is basically saying, um, I'm not necessarily afraid of what's going to happen, but I'm just happy that, happy that it happened. And um, I'm, I'll be able to revisit all these wonderful things that happened. Yeah. I had a good it life. Yeah, and what sort of what I took from it is uh, the narrator, the narrator Kurt Vonnegut himself. He's kind of saying like, um, if if the Trafalgarians are true, and you know time doesn't stop nor does it continue, then he'll rather he'll be he'll be um, grateful for the fact that uh, many of those moments that he has experienced are nice. So that's kind of what I took from it. Yeah. I, I, I think that it's pretty apparent that the Trofmadorian as well as Billy Mindset are obvious reflections of, of uh, Kurt Vonnegut himself. And I think that just him saying that everything is happening at once still, the way that Billy and the Trofmadorian say it, is, is a little bit more dark, I would say, just because you're not progressing very much. And I think he does kind of point it out a little bit in the sense that he says that he's not overjoyed. It's a little bit of a darker quote, but he still is able to find a little bit of light in that darkness through the, through saying that he's grateful that the moments are still nice and that he enjoys some of them. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. All right, did you have anything else, Miguel? 
No, I guess we're just gonna move on to our next quote. All right, Isaac, what do you have? Okay, so I wanted to just go over the final quote in the novel, the final sentence of the final in the final chapter, and that is "One bird said to Billy Pilgrim, Pooty wheat." And we see Pooty wheat three, four times in the novel. It's really three times because the one of the one of the times it was kind of just a restatement, but. Yeah, I, I briefly mentioned it in the last podcast episode too, when I was talking a little bit about repetition and the way that Kurt Vonnegut uses it. But this is another one of those cases where he uses repetition uh, in the form of puti wheat, or the way that I imp- interpreted it was, what can you do? And it, the, the three times that you do see it, it kind of it kind of makes sense in the in the context. What can you do? The first time it's uh it's in the first chapter and it says and what do the birds say all there is to say about massacre things like pooty wheat or what can you do uh the birds have nothing more relevant to say about war it can't really can't really do anything about it and you can't really stop the senseless violence that is the massacre of war and kurt is definitely pointing that out through this senseless meaningless string of words i would call pooty wheat and I, I, I don't think I went into enough detail last time, which is why I'm going through it now. Uh, the second time is a little bit less clear. It's in the hospital uh, when Billy is recovering from a little bit of trauma from the war. It's three years after the war. And uh, it, it most likely represents what can you do? The war is over. It kind of already happened. There's nothing you can do about it. And the third time is at the final time, my quote, which uh it was found after all the dead bodies are exposed in Dresden when they find these little, uh, what do they call them? Like these little holes of dead people amongst the rubble. And again, it kind of just represents like the what can you do-ness of, of war. And uh, what do you guys think about that? I thought it was certainly kind of like a powerful quote in a sense. Um, I, I don't want to say like it's showing apathy to the whole war, but like you said, it's really just a, well, what can you do kind of um, thing. And I just thought at this point, it's trying to say like, all this is just, unfortunately, so natural in a sense. It's not surprising. And it's literally just like, what can you say? The bird and af- and I think it also shows an interesting perspective about us humans in that here we just got done killing each other so bad and the birds are still in peace the birds still say who did tweet they're they're just like hi they just got done watching us destroy each other so immensely and they've just been watching like what are you doing i haven't really thought about i haven't really thought of that perspective yeah and so it just shows how like all the other animals can live in relative peace, but not us. We are so focused on destroying each other sometimes, and it's kind of sad. It is sad. Um, but no matter what bad things we do, there are always the peace-loving animals in the background. Like, what are you doing? Why do you have to be so violent? Who did tweet? So that's kind of my, my two perspectives on that. Um, yeah, so what I saw it was, how I saw it was kind of like another way to say so it goes. Like, when at the end, when Kurt Vonnegut, when he put Pooty Wee at the it's sort of like, to me, it seems like um, sort of him not being able to say anything else about Jason. Sort of everything has been said, and there's nothing else to add to it. And it's just like, I guess it's another, for me, it's another version of so it goes but just like sort of a way of, you know, there's nothing else to talk about this situation and he's just gonna leave it at that, I guess. That's how yeah, I it's thought. It's like a, a grander version of So It Goes. That's, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. So I guess now I'll move on to my quote here. And that was in chapter eight, when they said, here was proof that he had a great big secret somewhere inside and he could not imagine what it was. And this is referring to Billy. And this happened, I believe, after um, 
Billy like got really sick to himself after hearing that song that the barbershop quartet sung at his anniversary he just like felt this immense sadness that he couldn't even describe he almost like passed out really and then that happened a second time when the quartet sung another song and he said it had nothing eventually he said it had nothing to do with the song songs that they were singing but rather like somehow with the quartet themselves but he's like basically there's something inside me I don't know what it is but there's this secret basically um there's something there's some kind of trauma hidden deep inside him and he doesn't know what it is and I was just wondering what you thought of that quote I thought it was really interesting to hear someone say that they have a big secret inside themselves but they have no idea what that piece of themselves is yeah, so um, I, I think it really, it's really different than the way most secrets are handled in reading. I feel like when someone says a secret in a novel or any type of writing in general, it's eventually revealed, but I think that's the opposite case in this story. I think when Vonnegut says that this is a secret, he legitimately means it will not be told exactly what it means. And what I, what I, what I kind of get it as is kind of a repressed memory of maybe this song was like in the back of his mind from the war and now he's kind of just thinking about it now he's hearing it firsthand and he's kind of just like he's overwhelmed by the emotions that it brought back like it's completely possible to repress memories like that into like this fault in the back of your brain and I think that's what Billy might have done here and I don't think that it was meant to be directly like told to the reader just to give it more sanctity as a secret yeah, certainly. Do you have any thoughts, Miguel? Yeah, I have like similar thoughts to Isaac in, in the sense that it, it's sort of like a repressed memory. Like he's trying to forget what happened. And when he hears this, it's sort of, it all comes back to him. And sort of this, like he experiences like this, like, I guess, I don't know how to say it. Um, Yeah, I don't know how to say it. Uh, but yeah, he it's it's a secret that that's not supposed to be told. But when when he's suddenly reminded of this, um, he has like this really grand reaction to it. And he was just this whole scenario was really interesting to me. Yeah, it really was. Yeah. So uh, let's just get into our uh, final thoughts about the novel, the way it ended, because we did finish reading this novel, Slaughterhouse-Five, and I would really like to hear what you guys have to say about the ending i know what i have to say about it and i'd like to go after you guys but yeah let's hear it sure um yeah i guess i'll go first so um i guess my general reactions to the book but also relating it to the ending of the book um i sort of have mixed feelings on it at first i thought the puti you know it, it fitted pretty well you know that he didn't have anything else to say about it but at the same time i guess i would have liked to see you know something more satisfied more satisfactory the the just the fact that billy it was told that billy um died midway through the book uh, i guess i can see sort of why kurt vonnegut you know did that but i don't necessarily agree with it i just don't think that the ending was sort of nice but i guess i would have liked something different something more satisfactory it's sort of something that, you know, finally gave me that, you know, oh, you know, I see why he did that moment. But, you know, I didn't really, you know, experience that. It's more of like, oh, okay, you know, he doesn't have anything else to say about it. Yeah. That's sort of like how Definitely. I thought about it. Yeah, I agree with that. It's that I, I like the ending, sort of. It was a peaceful ending and whatnot. Yeah. But it also didn't give me like that sense of closure you usually get in a novel. Yeah. Um, you want to know like what happens to these people at the end how how does their life go on but I mean as Isaac pointed out in the other episode how this seems to be structured like a Tralfmadorian novel in these little bits and pieces all scattered throughout the book I I think like the ending probably really came like in the middle of the book when Billy died so I think I I like the ending, but I think it could have been better because I just wanted to 
I just wanted a little more satisfaction, see what happens afterwards. But then again, I probably already got that in the middle, I guess. Yeah, and I, I think that was honestly done by design of the writer here. I think it was kind of on purpose that he left things like kind of unsatisfactory for the viewer. I mean, very sadly, my theory was correct. I was right. There is not going to be a huge payoff at the end. It was kind of lackluster. And I think it was definitely done on purpose just because of um, the, the, the idea that there is nothing better to say about war. It's like this iceberg that you cannot stop. It's pretty much inevitable. And, and to say, to say Puti wheat all the way at the end is just to say like, yeah, this is my story. What can you do about it? Um, I, I, I honestly, I honestly do like the ending a little bit more than you guys seem to like it just because of um, it, it makes sense in the context of everything that we've read, just like uh, how I was talking about in the last episode about how the Chaffmadorians don't make their novels linear. They make it more of a canvas of, of literature. And it's not supposed to be looked at like for in order. You're supposed to kind of look at them all at the same time, just as individual stories in their own way, saying and meaning maybe a different thing going across each one. And I think the, uh, the ending, it doesn't explain it, but it definitely, uh, definitely shows that meaning a lot more. Yeah, yeah you're, you're right. Even though we, Miguel and I weren't the biggest fans of the end, yeah. I guess, it does make sense with the rest of the book. So. Yeah, it, it certainly does make sense. I still don't kind of agree with it. I, I like yeah. it, don't get me wrong. <laughs> it's just, I guess I would have liked something more satisfactory. Yeah, that's yeah, what we're used to. We're used to that linear beginning, middle, climax, and end. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that's the end of our first segment here on the literary analysis. We'll be right back after the break, and we're going to analyze a little scholarly article to get some more information about this novel and Kurt Vonnegut. So we will be right back. Stick with us. to all you wonderful listeners out there. I just wanted to take a minute to tell you something that is not a paid advertisement, but I just know you all love interruptions. So I'm bringing you one today. I just wanted to tell you about Anchor. Anchor Anchor.fm is a podcast production site that we here at Unstuck in Reality use. We've used it a little bit for recording. We've used it a lot of bit for editing and it will distribute to all the major podcast platforms when you are ready. You do not have to be an expert in audio recording editing. You do not have to be some marketing expert to get it distributed. Just set it up and send it out. So anybody looking to get into this hobby should definitely check this out as a possibility. I think it could probably help you. Again, not a paid ad, just an interruption. On to the next segment. All right, welcome to our second segment. In this segment, we had to do a secondary piece to analyze. And this piece was called What Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five Tell Us Now, The New Yorker by uh, Salman Rushdie. And so the first quote that I found pretty interesting, it said, it sees war as a tragedy so great that perhaps only the mask of comedy allows one to look it in the eye. Vonnegut is a sad-faced comedian. If Heller was Charlie Chaplin, then Vonnegut was Buster Keaton. His predominant tone of voice is melancholy, the tone of a voice of a man who has been present for a great horror and lived to tell the tale. So basically what I thought of that about this was that it it was true that um, sort of what Kurt Vonnegut saw in Dresden was probably really horrifying to see. And so a way that I feel he's trying to get this off his chest or tell this story was through comedy and through Billy which I'm sure is going to connect to a point that uh, Isaac is going to make right now. So what did you guys think about the quote? Sure. So I, I thought that was an interesting quote, but if, I, if I'm being like totally honest, um, I didn't like find the novel like that funny. So yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, there were like a couple jokes and giggles here and there, but I yeah. certainly wouldn't like, 
by any means classify the novel as a comedy novel, not, not even as like a sad face comedy novel necessarily. Um, but I, I think I can see where they're coming from. There were some jokes and stuff. And I think that's prob that probably, it seems like that's more of Vonnegut's personality and how he dealt with this kind of stuff. But overall, I just don't really think like the novel itself was a comedy in any way. Yeah, so um, it definitely reflects the way that uh, Vonnegut views the whole situation of war, just like Luke says. And uh, I mean, I do kind of disagree in the sense that he doesn't classify it as a comedy. I, I think that it's just comedy can be so much on a like different scale, just depending on the kind of person that it's coming from. And in this case, Vonnegut is just coming from a very dark place uh, during this writing this novel. I'm pretty sure he was pretty depressed at the time. And um, yeah, it definitely reflects the way that he feels about the situations that he's talking about. And uh, I think that it's, it's really strange the way that, that he goes about it just because it might not be appealing to everyone. But, uh, but you know, I, I think there were some pretty funny parts, but that's just my opinion. Yeah, there were a couple giggle spots, I guess you could call it. Um, but here's just a question of mine. I'm curious to know what, what part made you think that Vonnegut was kind of like depressed? I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I'm curious like where you got that from. Oh, sure. I mean, I, I, I feel like just a lot of the talk that he had just about the situations, like I, I keep going on and about the situations that were present, but like you kind of have to be in a really dark place to be joking about this kind of stuff. Like, obviously, Vonnegut is a little bit of a darker humor type of guy, but like you can kind of just hear it in the tone, the way that he talks about some of these things and the way that he jokes about it. And I, I really found that interesting. Yeah, I see what you mean. So I just want to bring up a little quote after this. And I mean, what I have here is not a direct quote, but it's something that was discussed in the article for sure. And it was um, how the author was saying that the way this novel depicts us humans, it doesn't depict us necessarily as evil or as kind hearted beings, but it said that these are, this is kind of like we're not inherently evil. And this is honestly just our normal in a sense. This is how we are. Um, we're not especially evil. We're not especially kind that like war, I guess is just kind of like our baseline in a sense. And I, that quote or that statement just kind of like struck me because I mean, in a sense, I agree. In another sense, it's also just sad that that's, that's our normal, you know what I mean? So it certainly made me think for a bit. And I don't think the author is wrong, but it is just kind of sobering to think, oh, that is like our normal in a sense. And it's not cool, but I guess in some ways that's how it is. What did you guys think? Um, so yeah, I think that that's definitely a sad thing that um, we're sort of like in the middle that we can't be like, kind to one each one another but I also think that it's a matter of you know people in this war trying to survive so they can't necessarily be too nice to each other or um to like yeah not too nice to each other but uh as for this book as a whole um yeah I certainly agree with that statement though as as a book as a whole yeah it was certainly um just the thing that kind of struck me I mean, did you have any thoughts, Isaac? I mean, yeah, I, I totally com completely agree with that entire notion that war is kind of just a part of human nature just because I, I guess we're just animals with a little bit smarter intelligence using bigger weapons than some might use in battle for land, food, whatever, ideas. I think we just have the, uh, the higher intelligence that basically brings us to this point. But um. Yeah, what we see in war is just kind of like a more advanced version of anything that you would find in nature. And I, I, I completely agree with it. I, I think it makes sense. It's very sad. It's a very sad thing to think about. And like talked about many times during the novel, it's, it's kind of just like a glacier that you can't really stop. It's pretty much inevitable. Yeah, and that, you know, alludes, right? What you said alludes right back to that, to the very beginning of the book when Vonnegut's friend said, why don't you write a book about glaciers? Right. There's um, 
I think this is probably just kind of like a reinforcement of that idea that in some ways, sadly, this is how we are. And like I said, it was a sobering thing to think about. It's also true in some ways. Yeah, so I just wanted to talk about uh, one of the ending statements that that uh, that Salman Rushdie made about the uh, about the novel, and that was this quote uh, talking about Billy. But he has a characteristic in common with many of characters in Vonnegut, many of the characters Vonnegut wrote throughout his career, and it is the characteristic that allows us to care for him, and and therefore to feel this horror that he that he feels. Billy Pilgrim is lovable, and I uh, I completely disagree with that statement. I think it's not a correct statement. Um, so what makes me disagree with that? Uh, I think it's actually uh, very difficult to actually care about this character. Um, Vonnegut never really gave us any reasons to, ca to care about him at all. He, uh, he gave us more reason to dislike him than anything. He, uh, he didn't really, he, he said pretty early on that he didn't really like his wife all that much. He, he didn't hate her. He didn't feel that lovable towards her. Uh, he was kind of the worst to his daughter on a couple of occasions. And uh, he also just died halfway through the novel. So it's, it's really hard to, to feel any towards a, any type of compassion towards this character that we don't feel really matters all that much. I mean, he is an excellent vessel for Vonnegut to talk about uh, ideas or things that he wanted to talk about, like the war, his philosophies and other small messages that he sprinkles around the novel. And uh, also Billy never really reacts to his situations around him. He's, he kind of just stares at them as the narrator talks about him. And I, I, I don't really think Billy Pilgrim is all that lovable. I don't think he, he's really that interesting. I think he's generally un, un, uninteresting just because he had such little character. But um, I, I think that is what made him the perfect character or the perfect role that he was set to be put in. He's yeah. just a, a vessel for things to be spoken about. Yeah, and I guess uh, you touched upon this uh, when you were talking, but like sort of how he doesn't react to any situation. And I guess to add on to that, because, you know, Billy has already seen the future because he was like, he, he already knew, like, because of the Chalfman Dorians, I guess that added to his character in the sense that he already knew what was coming. And because of that, there wasn't really any surprises. There wasn't any, like, surprising moment for Billy in this novel since he already knew what was going to happen before it had happened. Yeah. Certainly. And... I mean, I do have to agree with you on some points, Isaac. I wouldn't necessarily call Billy lovable like this author does, but I do care for him in some ways. I mean, in some ways, I'm like, wow, this poor guy, he's really messed up from war. Like, I have, I feel sympathy for him, but I, like you, I wouldn't, like, call him lovable. There were some times where he was honestly just annoying. <laughs> Right now, admit it. It there were some times where it's just like, grow up, Billy. You're what, twenty one or something, twenty two, in that. Yeah, he was pretty young during range. the war. Yeah, he was. He was pretty young, but sometimes I'm just like, come on, Billy, grow up. You're alive. You're here. You need to act like that. You need to look people in the eye. You need to, like, you know. He wasn't particularly lovable to me, I'll say that, but he wasn't all annoying to me. So I think you have a lot of good points, but I also think the, um, the journalist here also has a couple of good ones. I don't know, Billy is to say the least a confusing character sometimes. And I don't think there's one like solid way to view him or know what's up, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, certainly. Well, I guess that's it for segment two, everybody. Next up, we will be having a very special guest that we'll be interviewing about the whole concept of death culture around the world, as we saw some interesting philosophies from Billy, and we wanted to talk about, about that with someone. So if you have a special guest coming right up, stay tuned. We'll be right back after the break.
welcome back to segment three, everybody, and thank you for sticking with us. Today here we have a very special guest, um, Mr. Willie Cobb. He is a hospital chaplain here in Chicago, and he's an awesome guy all around. We just want to ask him a little bit about his um, encounters with different cultures and their death practices. So, um, Mr. Cobb, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. How are you guys doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Good. So I, I thought maybe I'd start off. Just tell us a little bit about yourself and your work as a chaplain and some of the stuff you've encountered. I, I mean, I'm sure you could go on for hours about that, but just some of your big things. Well, I'm Dr. Cobb. I've been a chaplain for almost 10 years. And I've been working with people in death for longer than that. And so I have an enormous amount of uh, experience in different kinds of people's suffering and their death practices. So if you guys have any specific questions, we can go there or I can tell stories. It's up to you. I mean, I think it might end up being kind of a little bit of both because one of my questions was maybe like, what has been some of the most unique or interesting death practices you've encountered? Because, you know, here in like the general culture in like Christian America has been like, you know, it's a really sad and solemn occasion and there's funerals and cemeteries. But I know like in some places, even like down in New Orleans, like death can be a celebration, a party practically in some ways. So I just wanted to hear some of your takes on maybe the most interesting or unique. Well, when you talk about death practices, you're talk actually talking about culture and cultural context. Yeah. And so it's a little um, simple to call it a death practice. And so each culture has its own way of living out those practices. So even within Christianity, you have different forms of death practices or different cultures. So Catholics practice their rituals different than, let's say, um, Protestants or some Protestant groups or Pentecostals. So just because they're Christian doesn't mean they have the same death practice. Interesting. And so in New Orleans, um, there's a mixture of religions. So that's why they have such an interesting death practice. You have a mixture of French Catholic and African religions, hoodoo, voodoo, and they've mixed all those together. And so, yes, in New Orleans, they'll even have a parade um, as a part of their death practice. So each, within Christianity, each culture has its own particular way of getting stuff done. And so Catholics, it's pretty formal. And for those who are formal Catholics, um, they want what we call the, they call the last rites, but we call it extreme unction. It's the final prayer. And then before the pandemic, Catholics would have their um, celebration depending on the Catholic culture because some Catholic cultures do it different than others. Um, you have your mass in the church. Um, and before that, you have a service at the funeral home. Now, some will have the mass at the funeral home. Some will have the mass at the church. And so for some Catholics, they have a several days of mourning at the funeral home. And then they'll have the mass and then they'll have the burial. But for other Catholics, for Black Catholics, a lot of times, um, because of cultural differences, Black Catholics will have the funeral in the evening. Huh. So they have nothing at the funeral home. If they're Catholic, nothing happens at the funeral home. For Black Catholics, that's a little morbid. And everything happens at the church, and then you have the burial. But that'll happen at night because they're waiting for other people to come from the South. 
That's a part of Black Catholic tradition. Oh. So, so within travel. Well, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Okay, I was just going to say, so basically, um, with Black Catholic tradition, like a lot of people travel for that funeral, like from the South, especially, I guess. They have to come. Yep. Interesting. So I guess um, the next thing, well, first, let me tell you a little bit about the main character and his thoughts on death is... Um, main character's name is Billy in this book and his philosophy on death it's a complicated story how he came to this philosophy so I'm not going to tell the whole thing but basically his philosophy on death is and time and life in general is that you you never truly die necessarily that you can see you can go back to any moment in time basically he can like you're never in one moment. You can see any moment there is and you can go back and enjoy the wonderful things in life. It's not, there's not necessarily a solid end, which was something that, you know, kind of baffled me for a little bit, but I thought that was really an interesting thing. So I know um, for lots of um, religions, like there's the, the belief of the afterlife, like heaven, um, or others. And so I'm wondering, like, how much does that whole afterlife idea kind of vary throughout cultures? The afterlife, if we look at religious practices from the beginning, comes from a religion called Zoroastrianism or Zoroastrianism. It's the very first organized religion. They were before Judaism. They were before Christianity. They were way before Islam. And they still exist today in Iran. Now, you you cannot um, join them. You can only be born into them. So their numbers shrink all the time. And they are the very first religion that gives us the idea of an afterlife. They believe that you have to go through a bridge of fire to burn all the sins out of you, and then you live in the afterlife after you've been purified of your sins. Gotcha. And that's, a, that's called Zoroastrianism. Um, Native Americans have a similar concept. It's, a, it's called a sin veil. They believe that there's simply a sin veil between um, the afterworld and our world. And you can peek through that veil from time to time and spirits can come and visit us. And of course, um, what he's talking about is a little akin to um, Hinduism that believes in reincarnation. So the Buddhist would believe that there's no such thing as permanence, that you're not permanently dead that you're going to come back um, depending on your karma in life. So there's lots of different concepts about the afterlife. Most people get the concept of um, karma wrong, um, but there are several different religions that have that kind of belief system, that you either come back or you can... Um, see through or visit the person. And for Christians, particularly for Catholics, we believe something similar, that um, the person watches over us from heaven. So that person doesn't come back, but that person will watch over us. And that person has never gone from us. Um, it's pretty close. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I have a question, if, if you don't mind. I have an answer. All right, great. Um, so to be a little bit more exact on the uh, on the belief system that exists in the novel Slaughterhouse Five, um, it's it's not. I wouldn't call it religion. I would call it, yeah, just a belief system. And the way that it works is in this what they call a fourth dimensional plane, where you're kind of experiencing all moments in time, like 
in that moment there's no like linear present or past it's kind of mm -hmm. just like the past and the future and the present are all occurring at the same time and the the time of death just happens to be a bad spot for whoever is existing in that moment and i, I just want to know if there are any like cultures or maybe even religions that have similar ideas to that that you exist all in the same time in the same space at the same moment yes no no so that's very unique to this novel then people either believe that you move on to the next life or for some in judaism they believe that there's just nothing. Yeah, right. I, I would definitely call this belief system a little bit more of an atheist belief system, just because in several times in the novel, they don't, they, I wouldn't say they uh, condemn God to not being real, but they do not very much believe that God has a factor to play in anything. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, I wouldn't call that a religion. I would call it more of a philosophy. Right. Yeah. Philosophy is a much better word for it then. Yeah. That you you exist <clears throat> at the same moment at the same time anywhere and everywhere. Yeah, right. no no religion really believes that. Not that I know of. Maybe there is some, but I don't know of it. Right. Okay. Um. And I thought, like, kind of on that point, Isaac, that you made um an interesting thing that it reminded me of is that Billy, the this main character that we're talking about. He was a chaplain's assistant in the military. And um, so it's kind of just interesting to me to see the way his beliefs kind of progress. Um, you know, it was stated at some point in the book that he was a Catholic and he was a chaplain's assistant. Um, so, I mean, it's just kind of interesting. And I think about it for a minute, how like he has progressed through this novel and through his beliefs. Well, that makes sense why he has that belief now, because I hate that term, chaplain's assistant. <laughs> yeah, it, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to us either. Well, let me explain it to you. Within Catholicism, there's a very special ritual. That is what I mentioned before, being able to give the last rites or extreme unction. Anybody who's sick, can receive the extreme unction. But there's only one person who can give the extreme unction, and that's the Catholic priest. And so the only person who can really deliver the holy oil and say the what some would call the final prayer is the Catholic priest. So within the Catholic Church, even right now, within chaplaincy, they're having a problem determining if you're not a priest, can you be a chaplain? And so within the Catholic Church, right now, the argument is no, you can't be a chaplain. You can only be a chaplain's assistant. Even if you have more education, even if you have more experience, you can only be a chaplain's assistant because you cannot give certain sacraments extreme unction being one of them, um, two people. Only a priest can do that. So they try to call you the chaplain's assistant. So in some hospital settings right now, um, if it's Catholic, they will do that. The priest is the main chaplain and everybody else is his assistant. I don't put up with that crap. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly a thing like we couldn't understand at first it's like what is his true role then because i i'm pretty sure that what they said in the book was that he did work with like a chaplain or someone who was considered a chaplain at least back then um so it just made me think like what's the kind of work that he did and i guess um i guess like even today there's kind of that debate about it and what can and cannot be done. So that's really interesting to hear. Um, well, like, actually, it's a huge debate because there's also before COVID communion. Yeah. And along with 
the extreme unction or the last rites, sometimes people only want a Catholic priest. <laughs> I'm what's called a lay minister in the Catholic church. So there are people who only want a Catholic priest to bring them communion. Hmm. So they will, they will not receive it from anybody else. Interesting. So, um, I mean, I don't know. I'm not very well versed in the whole world of religion and different roles of different people like chaplains, but it, correct me if I'm wrong, chaplain, like hospital chaplains at least, kind of like minister to all different religions, right? Absolutely. Okay. So what what might be like your role for a Catholic patient in like a hospital? Do they just want to see the priest or are they usually willing to see you? Like yeah. where where do you kind of fall there? That depends on the culture. Okay. Some older Catholics, particularly Eastern European Catholics, only want a priest. Okay. And some of them are so racist, they're so separatist, they only want a priest from their own culture. Uh, so Polish, I have been with people who are dying, who were Polish, and they only wanted a Polish priest who spoke Polish. And uh, at two o'clock on a Sunday morning, nobody's finding a Polish priest. No. <laughs> And I've had a, an Italian woman who never got a prayer or a blessing because she only wanted a prayer or a blessing from an Italian priest. Wow. So some of them take these rituals extremely seriously. Yeah. All the way up unto death. Yeah, that's, that's kind of hardcore. I mean, for lack of a better word. Um, they're really stuck to that belief. That's, that's interesting. It makes me think, really. It is extremely hardcore. Yeah. Wow. Well, going back to the chaplain's assistant debate, I, I, I want to point out also that, that the main character was an assistant of a chaplain in, in amidst of war. So I think that also might have a, 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 a part to play and the fact that a chaplain may also be an assistant because you're out on the battlefield. That may be the case in the book, but in reality, it is a big struggle between lay people and ordained people. That's a big struggle in the Catholic Church because if you cannot find a priest at two o'clock in the morning, should the lay person be able to give extreme unctions, the last rites? Should the lay person be able to give the oil to the person and the, say the final blessings and prayers? There's a big debate within chaplaincy about um, the Pope allowing for lay ministers who are chaplains not to be considered assistants because they do it whether it's a war or not, but to be considered full-fledged chaplains. I am nobody's assistant. Yeah. There you See, go. I minister to anybody and everybody who comes into the hospital. Not on just the people who come in, I minister to the staff, to the nurses, to the doctors, to everybody. It doesn't matter their religion, it doesn't matter their faith. Here's the difference, I don't proselytize. It's not my job to bring them to Jesus. That's somebody else's job. It's my job to help them to feel less emotional pain, particularly while they're dying, to have somebody to be there while they're dying. And so again, each one of these cultures has their own cultural belief system, but we're finding more and more that some have none at all. And some of those, some of those were ex-Catholics. They have no belief system whatsoever. Interesting. They just kind of 
abandon that kind of if they were an ex-Catholic? Well, a lot of times they feel like the church has abandoned them. Because of the church's rules and regulations, the church has left them. So if I can't be a full-fledged chaplain, I'm definitely not going to be somebody's assistant. Why do it at all? Yeah, I see what you mean. That's, that's interesting. Well, that's the end of our interview with Dr. Cobb. Um, Dr. Cobb, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a really wonderful discussion and I learned a whole lot. And we thank you for taking the time out of your Monday evening to talk to us. Really appreciate it. No problem. I enjoyed you guys. Have a good one. Thank you. You too. Well, folks, that's a wrap on our podcast series, Unstuck in Reality. We finish episodes one, two, and three, and that is our final episode. We all really did truly enjoy making this podcast, and I hope you truly enjoyed listening to it. If you have any suggestions that you want to make for a future podcast that I or my friends might do, please, by all means, go right into the show notes and leave us a voice note at the link provided. Otherwise, thank you so much for listening. We really do appreciate it. I hope you have enjoyed and you all have a wonderful day.